been looking at the last few weeks is, is Paul's story and how it falls into and rests in God's bigger and larger story of his redemptive pursuit for us. And we continue on today to look at what story is and what it means. Now, when I moved here, when I first came and visited uh, here in 2013, one of the things that I noticed was the exorbitant uh, cost of soda, of Coca-Cola here. So where you would see a a case, 24 uh, cans of Coke being uh, $24.00. Uh, you know, on sale, $12. I'll let you know in the States, because we're obese and like diabetes, we have our Cokes uh, that are, okay, that's not true. Not everybody's obese or like diabetes in the States. That's facetious of me, I apologize. But we do like our sugar and corn syrup. And so we have Cokes that are very inexpensive to make. Uh, As a matter of fact, you can get a a 12-pack of Coke sometimes for five bucks if you're lucky at certain stores uh, when they're on sale. Now, one of the interesting things about Coke is Coke has many different varieties. They have Coke, they have Diet Coke, and they have Coke Zero, although that's changing. I don't know if you know, Coke Zero is fading away, and now no sugar Coca-Cola is coming in. And it's kind of funny because it reminds me of the fact that, that we like new things. Um, even if they don't change things that much, j- just a little bit, we like new things. We like the shiny. We like the progressive. We like the better. We like the improved things. As a matter of fact, it's very much a, a sort of a marketing tool that people can just tweak something just a little bit and they can say it's new or improved. And we think, well, maybe I need to try that. It's new and improved. It must be good. Now, many of you maybe are uh, well aware that at one point, Coca-Cola decided they were going to change their formula, and this was back in the late 80s, early 90s, and they came up with a thing called New Coke. And New Coke hit the market, and they pulled Coca-Cola off the market, and New Coke quickly just dropped to the bottom of sales. Nobody wanted New Coke. And so many of you out there are like me thinking, yes, why would somebody want something new, a new Coke? As a matter of fact, they went back to Coca-Cola, but they rebranded it Coca-Cola Classic. And don't we all like classic as well? Like really, we like the old. The old is better, right? Tradition is good. It's more stable. It's more proven. There's performance that we can base what's going to happen because it's been around and it's been going on. With the old, we know what we're going to get. And we like it. Look, if it's not broke, why fix it? Haven't we said that before? The reality is that falls short as well for us. We get trapped in this sort of life of going, what's new and what's old and what gives me security, but what's going to excite me? What's going to propel me forward? But how can I do that unless I know that I'm okay by holding on to what's behind me? And that's where we're at here with the Gentile story. See, the Gentiles are new to all of this, right? They're new converts. They're new to stepping in from this pantheon of many gods to one true God. From this idea that I've got to make sure I'm doing everything to please the gods 
to a place of saying there's nothing you can do to please the God, but he is pleased with you in spite, as a matter of fact, in fact of all of that. (laughs) That he loves you regardless. This idea that all of life is broken and there's no way that it can get whole without my own sort of movement and work in it. And the Gentiles are learning that, no, in fact, that God's pursuit is about wholeness. A whole relationship with him, with ourselves, with others, and with place. And they're new to it, and so it's brand new to them, and they can't help but get enough of it. But Paul, in telling us their story, says, why are you so foolish? How did you get attracted by the old? How did what was new that was shiny become dull, and what is old become shiny to you and new? You see, because what has happened is the Judaizers have come in, and they've said, no, 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 no. All that newness is good and fine, but you've got to grab hold of the tried and true. You've got to do the things that we've been doing. You've got to become Jewish. You have to get circumcised. You need to eat and celebrate the festivals we eat. You need to keep the Sabbath holy. You need to do all of these things in order to really follow this new sort of Jesus. It's really interesting Their desire, the Judaizers' desire, is to get them to trust the tried and true. The thing that they feel has seemed to work for them. And the reality is they've not recognized that it doesn't work for them. That's, in fact, why Jesus had to come. In the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes about this little demon and his uncle demon, his mentor demon, who's trying to figure out how they are supposed to get Christians to stop believing or keep people from believing who God is. And one of the things that the older says to the younger is this, a moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all, and sometimes more amusing. A moderated religion, so what what does that mean? What does a moderated religion mean? Well, essentially, it means a religion we can do on our own. A relationship that we've figured out the tasks that need to take place, the buttons that need to be pushed, the magic lamp that needs to be rubbed in order to get this genie God to do the things that we want him to do. In order to please him so that he'll be pleased with us. And what we tend to look at and say here when we see this story of the Galatians and the story of the Judaizers is they fall into this place of of what we've affectionately started calling legalism. But it's really Judaism is what they're talking about. Legalism looks different for us. The way that we build our structures and our systems in a way within our story to give us protection. And I want to stop just a minute and say, look, I understand why legalism is inviting. I get it. Now, I really understand why living without any sort of relationship with God is inviting as well. Like, because then I don't have anybody telling me what to do and I get to do it all on my own. What we don't recognize is that legalism, in fact, is the same thing. Because legalism is based on our assumptions and our systems and our way of viewing God, not the way that God views us. And that's the first sort of appealing thing about legalism, is it looks good, it looks like it's the right thing, it looks like it's a moderated religion. But it's all based on how we want 
to build this whole relationship with God. It's based on the things that we know that somehow we can accomplish. Because we're smart enough to know that if I add things that I can't do, then I'm going to have to have somebody else do them for me. Which means I'm going to fall short of doing the thing that I wanted to do. So I better build a system of things that I can accomplish. So that means I need to have a quiet time for the Lord. And if I don't have a quiet time with the Lord, then I might not actually be pleasing the Lord. Now how big of a quiet time do I need to have? Well, see, there you go. Who do I want to compare myself to? Do I want to compare myself to people who don't have quiet times? Then all I need is five minutes. Or do I want to compare myself to people who have mighty quiet times of hour and a half? Well, then I'm going to fall short. So who do I, who do I compare? Well, I compare myself to me. Have my quiet time this morning. I'm good. We build these systems in our place because we know that we're able to accomplish them and do them. So that's one reason why legalism is enticing to us, is because we're the ones who build it. <laughs> we're the ones who set the parameters. The second one is this, and maybe the more crucial one, is it gives us the ability to compare ourselves with others. And where we happen to sit in the place of, uh, of our understanding of who we are gives us the ability to either feel bad about ourselves or good about ourselves. And do you realize that we in our human fallenness like to either feel good about ourselves or bad about ourselves? Now, many of you out there who maybe have felt bad about yourself think nobody ever wants to feel bad about yourself. You're lying to yourself. Oftentimes, we like to feel bad about ourselves. We like to think that we can't accomplish, we can't do, we're just not good enough. Why? Because then we can lower all expectations. Then when we have something that does hurt us, then when we have something that does break relationship in our lives, we can say, see, I knew it all along. I'm not worthy. I was right. Hello, Lord. The flip side of that is we can compare ourselves and feel better about ourselves. Because People aren't doing what I do. People aren't living as good a life as I'm living. People aren't acting like I'm acting. People don't believe the way that I believe. And that's what was going on here in the stories of the Gentiles. That's why it says, are you so foolish? Paul, like, rapidly asked them six questions. Boom, 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 boom. It's like they don't get a breath. And the reason why is because he wants to confront them in a way that comforts them in the end. He wants to confront them in a way that they don't have time to really sort of create some balanced argument of why what they're doing is okay. And he says, you're foolish. Why are you so foolish? Why do you think the thing that God started in you, you can keep doing in the flesh? You can't. And he wants to remind them of that, but not only that, he wants to make sure that they understand, and the Judaizers, who's the ones who are bewitching them, <laughs> know that no, the old is good and the new is good. And so he goes back to Abraham's story for them. He goes back to Abraham's story and says, before all of this, before even the law, God's pursuit, his righteous, holy, loving pursuit for whole relationship, we see it promised to Abraham. Abraham, who had no reason to believe, but did. Why? Because God gave him that belief. 
And the righteousness that he got, the place of wholeness that he moved into, was not by him believing, not by him moving, not by him doing, but because God gave him belief. God moved in him and said, yes, you're righteous now because of faith, because of what you've given to me, because of what I've given to you and what you in turn give to me. Look at that. He lets them know. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now then, that is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. What he's telling the Gentiles in their stories is you are the sons of Abraham. The thing that they're trying to make you become by doing all these things, you already are. So you don't have to do all those things. Ask yourself, what systems do I have in order to please God? That I put more faith in those systems than I put in God. Ask yourself, what are the things that I assume need to happen for me to enter into a relationship with God that I know I can never do? And ask yourself where those systems have come from. Those barriers, I would dare say they come from your own heart. They come from you trying to build something that's accomplishable by action. And what Paul is telling us in our story is that it's not accomplished by our action, but it is already accomplished by Christ's action. That Christ himself became the curse in order for us to enter in to whole relationships. That's what he reminds them of the story of Abraham. He says, look, here's the deal. Yes, the law is present, but those who say, I'm going to follow the law and the law alone, it crushes them. They can't do it. The same is true for us. Even in our own lives, even in the systems that we set up, even in the, 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 easy, <laughs> the easy systems that we set up for us to be good. But... We say to ourselves, I'm, I'm not going to get upset with my partner today. And we roll out of bed and we're upset with our partner because we see something that makes us upset. Seemingly easy. I mean, I love this person. I'm with them. They love me. We care for why I should not be upset. I'm not going to worry about the drivers around me because I can't control those drivers. Those drivers, I have no, I don't even know most of these drivers. There's no way I can control these drivers. So I'm not going to worry about, hey, what are you doing? Don't pull in front of me like that. Right? Even our little, itty-bitty systems that we put in place, we can't accomplish. Imagine the law. That's why it says no one, no one can accomplish this. And if we think that's what we need to do in order to receive righteousness from God, then we are in desperate, desperate straits. That's what he reminds them of. He says, look, you can't do it. All who are cursed, and Christ has become that curse for us. He moves in that direction for us. Now, the Judaizers in this story, in this place, have been saying, Moses, Moses, Moses. Moses, 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 meaning the law. Moses, 
Moses, Moses. And next week we're going to talk about the importance of the law. But right here, what Paul is saying in this story is this. Yes, there is the law, but it does not nullify. It does not end. It does not change. It cannot alter the promise that was before. Because when the promise, the covenant is made, it is set. It is done. And the amazing thing about the story of Abraham and God's covenant, their contract with one another, this call of relationship is that Abraham did absolutely nothing, but God did it all. We see that in Genesis 15 where he splits the animals across and it is God himself who walks through the animals as a sign of it is me who is responsible for this. It is only me who is responsible for this. He says, it's done, it's written, and you can't annul it. And so, yes, Moses, yes, Moses. But it doesn't annul this. It doesn't change it. And so our story actually goes back to Abraham. Our story actually goes back to that promise. Because the promise is who? For all nations. Not just the Jewish people. And that's where we remember that Christ in his crucifixion and his resurrection was all about bringing together God's family. What? Restoring, creating whole relationships with himself, with ourselves, with each other, and with place. The reality is, is we love new. We do. We like new. I'd like a new car. We like new, but we like old as well. Old is good, it's true, and tried. I have some relationships that are very old relationships, and those are good relationships. But what we see in our story here, in the story of Galatians, in the story of who we are, is that it's not really about old or new, that it's really about intended. intended. What we hear here is that God intended all along for us to be in relationship with him. God intended all along for us to know who we are based on our relationship with him. God intended all along before the foundation of the world for our relationship with those around us to be based solely on him and his pursuit. That God intended all along before the foundation of the world that our relationship with the place that we live, the places where we work, the places where we celebrate, the places where we mourn, that those places are where God set us to have relationship with him. And that we don't have to separate old and new, but that we have to see within both the old and new the intention, the intended. And the intended relationship that he has for us. So we don't have to do away with the old, and we don't have to do away with the new. Now, we have to set them in proper place. And that proper place is the intention. That Christ himself is our intent. He's our intent. He's our focus. He's our one. He's our all. He is our completion. He is our wholeness. He is our truth. He 
And he alone is the one who helps us to enter in, who walks us in, who provides entrance in to the relationship with God. And it doesn't matter the old things that you did, and it doesn't matter the new things that you did. Because God brings them all together in his intention of Jesus Christ. And so we celebrate. We celebrate and we know that yes, yes, I like to build things easy for myself. And I will fall short. And that's okay. Because Christ has done it all. Christ has accomplished it all for us. Let's pray. Father, you are good to us. Let these words be your words. Let them not fall short. We pray that if they are not your words, that they will burn up. If they are your words, that they will take root in our hearts and they will bring you glory and honor and praise. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we sing together.